Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 9, where we'll be this morning. Uh, Welcome back from uh, spring break. Maybe you've already gotten back, or maybe you're a teacher sort of gearing up mentally and coming back uh, this week, and we want to be praying for you and be mindful uh, of all that you've got going on. This past week, um, we were traveling with our students, and uh, I read alongside maybe some of you that were paying attention uh, to what was going on in the news, where our Federal Reserve had announced that they are going to begin the process of increasing interest rates. And that may not be of any interest to you, uh, except for the fact that it does affect you and what they're trying to do. It matters and how it affects our economy and how we spend money and think about money. They made the promise that over the next 12 months, they're going to increase it close to a quarter percent over the next 12 to really 18 months. And the reason why they're doing that is because inflation has gotten so high. And so many of us have all experienced the idea that food's more, gas is more, to buy a vehicle is more, clothes are more. Wall Street Journal says it's about 7.9% as far as cost of goods that have increased. And so what the Fed's trying to do and not crash our economy and sort of put us in economic despair is they're going to slowly raise those interest rates and it's going to be harder to buy homes and all those kinds of things that we experience and and have experienced. That may not mean much to you, but it is deeply significant in how we function in our day-to-day. It's not quite an economic collapse and hardship, but it has created hardship for certain people. But you know, what's interesting in the timing of this this week is that we get to Exodus chapter 9, and what we begin to see is our God disrupts the economy, if you will, of the Egyptian people. And he does it in some peculiar ways. Now, we have understood the story of Exodus and these plagues all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. He is supreme and he is absolute. He does what he wants, when he wants. He doesn't need us, but yet he brings us in. He is completely sovereign in what he does and how he chooses to go about things. The odds are, if you and I were God and the Hebrews were our people, That in our own minds, finite minds, we wouldn't have let them live in slavery for 430 years under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. But he did. And he chose to deliver them in sort of a peculiar way. And we've seen this back and forth of Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God. And yet at times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And the reason why we see this happening and this ebb and flow is because every time Pharaoh hardens his heart, we see the signs and the wonders and the plagues, they begin to increase in their severity. And so every time Pharaoh resists, we see God come in a little bit stronger and it displays his power and it displays his supremacy and it displays the fact that he will not be second to anyone. And so we pick up in the text in chapter 9 verse 1 where it says this, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock, all that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. In the beginning of chapter 9, we are reminded of a theme that we have seen over and over and over again where Pharaoh tells or he is told by God to let his people go. Why? At the end of verse 1, that they may serve me. You see, God was reminding Pharaoh in this moment, and he's reminding us today in this very moment that the Hebrews, they belonged to God by covenant. They were his. 
They had been purchased and, and bought. It had been decreed that, that these were his people and that God in his sovereignty was no longer going to allow them to live in slavery, to live in bondage to Pharaoh. And so he says, you let them go so that they can serve me. Not you and not the heavy-handedness of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, but rather you are to release them unconditionally. But notice what it says in verse 2, for if you, Pharaoh, if you refuse, what God is doing in that moment is he is reminding Pharaoh that he will be the sole person responsible for the affliction that is about to come because of his disobedience. You, Pharaoh, will be the reason that I will go about delivering my people in this way because of your hardness of heart, because of your stubbornness, because of your unwillingness to listen to what I have commanded. You, Pharaoh, will be responsible, and this one man's act of disobedience will have far-reaching implications all throughout the land. But I want you to notice how the language increases in verse 3. He says, behold, the hand of God. If you were to flip back into chapter 8, verse 19, whenever the Lord releases the gnats, he uses a different phrase that's not quite the hand of the Lord, but rather he says, the finger of God. I have some close, very close friends of mine who grew up in very traditional Southern Baptist churches much like this, and they had sanctuaries that were a lot like this, and they were old school, and they sat in pews, and and the parents would often let the kids sit in front of them. And when the kids were growing up, and they were in middle school, and they were in high school, they did oftentimes what middle schoolers and young high school kids did in the middle of a long-winded sermon by a pastor, and they would begin to fidget, and they'd begin to act up. They begin to make noises. And so what that dad would do is he would grab the finger of God and he would come up behind them like this. And in the middle of a service, he would thump them in the back of the ear. Now you can imagine uh, you're laughing, many of you, because you've been the one that's been thumped in the back of the ear or you were the one that did the thumping at, at some point. But yet that small thumping and that finger would be nothing compared to to a hand that would come across. And what God is doing in this moment is he's saying, listen, the severity of each of these signs and wonders, of these plagues that are coming upon his people, they're going to get progressively worse. You experienced just the finger of God just a moment ago. Now you're going to experience the hand of God. And so what he's saying to Pharaoh is you better buckle up if you choose to walk and continue to walk in disobedience. But we see God's sovereignty on display as he begins to enact the thing that he told them that he was going to do. But I also want you to see once again this week his sovereignty that's on display as he begins to distinguish the Hebrew people from the people of Egypt. He says in verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. In other words, the punishment that the Egyptians are going to feel by the hand of God because of Pharaoh, God will deliver his people in this moment so that their livestock will not die, so that all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die, not die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. So to understand the significance of this moment in Pharaoh's life is up until this moment, he hadn't really lost any personal possessions and he hadn't really lost any personal property. And back in this time of Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, the the economy was deeply built upon animals and agriculture. 
So they had horses and they had cows that they would sell, they would import, they would export. They were dependent upon the camels to to carry things for them. And what God was saying in this moment, when I afflict all of the agriculture, all the animals, and all of the livestock shall die, it will cease and you will no longer have any opportunity to make a living and to earn a living, to provide for your families, to trade goods and to buy goods. I'm about to take all of that away. All of it. Now, Pharaoh had experienced these other miraculous things prior to this. He had seen the, the Nile turn, turn to, to blood. He had, he had seen the, the beetles that had come down. He had seen the lice that was there. And God was progressively enacting these things. And he's saying, listen, if you just let my people go that they may serve me, I won't crash your economy. And how I think this looks for us, and the parallel and the illustrative point here is this, imagine the one thing that we need today as a, as a country that we have to have in order to do our work. If, if the electric grid or electricity just disappeared for a moment, not that God would destroy our agriculture, but to take away our ability to do the work that God would have us to do, and the truckers shut down, and the ports shut down so that we could no longer buy or sell, it would completely and utterly, it would decimate everything that we do. Can you imagine TCU students graduating from college and having nowhere to go to work your craft? Because God has utterly and completely dismantled that. And you talk about inflation at 7.6 or 7.9, you talk about skyrocketing interest rates in the process of this, it would utterly ruin our people. And in this moment, it utterly ruins the Egyptian people. Why? Because of one man's disobedience. And it says in verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And so Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. He went to verify they weren't dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was continually hardened, and he did not let the people go. But you see, God's not just about economics. He's not just about disrupting prosperity sometimes because of disobedience and because of sin, but but also what's happening here in this moment is God is utterly attacking, and make no mistake about it, He is attacking and He is undermining and He is taking away the credibility of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. You see, so many of the the gods that the Egyptians worshipped were symbolized oftentimes in the form of a bull's head. And they would worship fertility gods and and, and potency gods and vitality gods. They dedicated uh, bulls and animals and depicted these pictures of guys like Bucus and Nevis and Apis, uh, the god named Isis, who was a female god of fertility, who was depicted with bull horns coming off of her head, a god named Hathor, whose primary responsibility, get this, who was depicted as a bull, his primary responsibility was only the welfare of the pharaoh. The only thing this God did was protect Pharaoh and any ill harm coming against him depicted in the form of a cow. So God comes in and it's as he says, and he eliminates and he attacks every single one of those gods. Undermining the idolatry that exists within the hearts of Pharaoh, within the hearts of the Egyptians, within the hearts of even his people. Now, when we back up for just a moment, there's a couple of big picture things that I want us to see in particular with this fifth plague. 
and taking away the livelihood of the livestock. What God is doing in this moment to his people is he is reminding us of the meaning of salvation and the idea that it is God's job to save his people. It is his task. It is his mission. And what God does in his word is, is he actually invites us into his mission, into what he has promised to redeem his people. And all we simply are, we are vessels in which to be used. God does the saving. We walk in obedience. We proclaim the truth and we live out the truth. We practice charity and, and compassion and we show mercy and we demonstrate the love of God. But ultimately, it is God who always does the saving. And he's reminding the Egyptian people in this moment that it is he and that it is he alone who brings the dead person back to life. Growing up over the years in the context of church, I've often heard the gospel as this, as this picture of, of us drowning in a, in a sea of our own sin. And, and we're still alive, but we're drowning. And Jesus comes by in the lifeboat and he throws us this life preserver. But I think more accurately depicted, it's not that we're drowning in the sea of our own sin, but it's rather Jesus comes up and we are a dead body who has died in the life of the sin and there is no life in us. And Jesus grabs us by the leg or he grabs us by the arm and he pulls us up on the boat and we're not breathing and there's no signs of life. And then what he does through the spirit of God is he breathes eternal life into his children, bringing something that was dead and making it alive. This is the picture of the gospel. We are not capable of saving and redeeming and restoring and reconciling ourselves to the Father, but only through Jesus. And the Egyptian people were incapable of saving themselves, and so God is reminding them of this, but also what God is doing in this moment through this fifth plague in particular, as we saw in verses one and two, he is reminding us that the purpose of life is to glorify God in everything that we do. When he says, let my people go that they may worship me, it's the reminder to you and I this morning that we have been saved for God's glory to worship him and to serve him. And when we speak about glory, as we've heard in previous weeks, it is the manifestation, it is the display of God's perfection and God's holiness. And so when we say, I want to glorify God and sing about God and, and, and exalt his glory amongst all the earth, we are speaking about the righteousness and the perfection and the holiness of God and putting that on display for all the world to see. We want to bring him glory. We want to show the world that he is perfect in every way and he is the only God that is worthy of our time and our attention and our talents. He saves us so that we would live on mission with him, that we would worship him and that we would serve him and that we would bring other people along for the ride, that they would worship him alongside of us and they would serve him alongside of us. We have been made for his glory and created for his glory just as the Hebrews were. And he reminds them, let them go that they may worship me. But thirdly, and I think perhaps most importantly in this passage, what he's doing is he is reminding us of the folly of worshiping idols other than the Lord. As one author 
put, idols promise a life of security and joy apart from God and often engage the deepest emotions of our hearts. We're not worshiping uh, female depictions of Isis with bullhorns. We're not worshiping God's name, Hathor, and all these other ones. But there are idols that deep, uh, deeply reside in the deepest parts of our hearts. And oftentimes, idolatry for the Christian church are found in our emotions and our feelings and even in our unmet expectations. As we get older, we realize that maybe all of our dreams that we hoped for didn't actually happen the way we wanted it to, or, or we took a left turn or a right turn somewhere, and we, we live in this season of regret and remorse and, and this feeling of condemnation even if we made mistakes or we did something wrong. And so oftentimes for the Christian today, the idolatry that exists, it exists deeply in our heart with the unmet expectations that we don't realize and we forget that we are worshiping those things. The things in our life that promise security and safety that come apart from God. And there's a connection here in particular to this plague and the next one, and I want to make that connection to the idolatry that exists. If we keep reading along in verse 8, it says this, and the Lord said to Moses, God's not done. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of the Pharaoh. What this command was designed to do in front of Pharaoh and his magicians, it was designed to utterly humiliate those magicians and those priests. See, what these priests would do is they would take the soot from these same places, these same ovens, and they would take the soot, they'd walk around, and they would throw the soot up in the air, and they would throw it really on top of people and in the air of rooms like this, and it was meant to convey a blessing to ever walked through the soot. And so if you got a little bit dirty from the, the magicians in the court of Pharaoh, it was meant to be a sign of blessing. And so in this moment, God not missing the irony of this moment, he tells them, you go take this same soot out of this same oven, and we're going to turn what they called a blessing, and I'm going to curse them with it. I'm going to use that soot, and I'm going to afflict them in this moment with boils. I'm going to turn what their magician said was a blessing, and I'm going to turn it into a curse, and I'm going to undermine and utterly seek to destroy their false system of belief to worship other gods that are not named Yahweh. And so the command is given, and throw it in the air, verse 9, it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. And it will become boils breaking out in scores, sores on man and beasts and throughout all the land. Now, this word boils in the Old Testament, it's used close to 12 different times, and scholars have a different view on these of possibilities that it could be. In Leviticus 13, we see the same word used here in this passage there, and it refers explicitly to leprosy. And so one possibility of the boils that are on top of the Egyptians in this moment is they were afflicted with some sort of disease that would have been similar to leprosy. There's other scholars, well-meaning, good scholars that would say, no, we're not really, we don't really think it's leprosy, but we think it's something uh, that would be akin to like smallpox. So that's a very minor view. But the vast majority of Old Testament scholars would hold that it's not leprosy, <coughs> excuse me, and it's not smallpox, but rather it would have come in the form of what we know today as anthrax. 
And when you hear the description of how anthrax sort of begins to manifest itself, it begins to make sense. And so anthrax begins with big swelling of the affected area. After two or three days, there appears this small, like bluish red uh, dot that begins to appear with this central depression in the middle of the swelling. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see this where the Lord says, the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and festering sores and itch and from which you cannot be cured. Now the point is that whether it's leprosy or anthrax or whether it's smallpox, the point is that the Egyptian people suffered and were afflicted with this disease because of Pharaoh. Because of his disobedience and because of his willing not to listen to what it was that God was doing. But yet in this moment, God is also doing something else. He's not just seeking to punish just for the sake of punishing. But you see, these Egyptians who worshipped many different gods, they had many different gods that they worshipped and they trusted for their own physical well-being and their own physical healing. Specific gods with specific names, gods such as Amon and Thoth and Imhotep and so on and so forth. And what God was doing is he wanted to expose that these gods whom they prayed to for healing were utterly impotent in the eyes of a sovereign God, the one true God. And so what he did was he completely undermined and sought to undermine their credibility in every which way. I got to thinking this week about the idea that we don't have gods known by the names of the Egyptian gods. But I think sometimes we can misplace our affections and put them in the wrong place. Look, in, in the age of, of CAT scans and antibiotics and anesthesia and a world with remarkable advances in, in vaccines and, and great doctors who God has given great wisdom and insight. And listen, we are thankful for all of those things, for every bit of those advances in medicine. And we need good, godly Christian medical practitioners all across that field to be about the glory of God and using the wisdom that God has given and imparts. And we say thank you for those things. But ultimately, what the Christian must understand is that our hope is ultimately not in the medicines that we receive. Because eventually, listen to me on this, eventually those medicines fail. Eventually those medicines don't work. They prolong our lives at times, and we're thankful for that, and we want good medicine, and we want to have great doctors that love the Lord and that are very competent, highly competent in their field and understanding what it is they're doing, but eventually those medicines, they wear off. I was two years in my pastorate in Ovilla, Texas, and there was a gentleman who was a Vietnam veteran that was in my church, and he was a mortar man in the army. And he was tough. And the first two years that I got there, I didn't think that Ed Bowling cared very much for me. Uh, he had one of those stern looks. He could have been characterized as this like old church curmudgeon. He was always seemed sour on certain things. And, and I didn't think he liked me. I didn't know why. Uh, I had no idea. And then one day, about a year and a half in, I was in the back of our auditorium and the service was about to start. And Ed would show up. He was of that military generation where he was always dressed like to the T, like he was a cowboy uh, or a wannabe cowboy, I guess. And I'd say that 
that to his face if he was still here. Uh, he had the, the Wranglers with the starch jeans, always had the crease in, always had the press shirt, always tucked in, hair was always combed and very professional in all that he did. And so one day I was in the back and the service was about to start. So I started walking down the center aisle and Ed's got his back turned to me like this and he's talking to someone else. And he has one of those shirts, they're not slim fitted shirts, they're sort of sticking out in the back. And so I walked by him. And again, I didn't think he liked me and I grabbed his shirt and I just pulled it up out of his britches as high as I could. And doing that, I, I think I actually grabbed his, his under britches as well. And he kind of does this and I do this and I let go and I, I take about four or five steps and I turn around and look at him and he's stone cold like Steve Austin is looking at me in the face. And I'm like, ah, this guy's going to slit my throat in the middle of the night. It's over. It's been a good run. Lord Jesus, I'm coming. And then within a split second, I saw this grin emerge ear to ear. And he smiled, one of the biggest smiles that I've ever seen, a 75-year-old man at the time. I didn't even know that you could smile that big and be 75 years old. Well, you know, it wouldn't, after that moment, Ed and I actually became really good friends. You fast forward five years later, Ed was diagnosed with a very painful type of cancer. And so he goes to his doctor and he receives treatment. He goes through the chemo and he goes into remission and, and life seems good. And I walked beside him in that. And then about six months later, he goes back to the doctor for a checkup and the cancer is back. And so he says, okay, I'll go back through the chemo again. And he goes through the process again and he's clear. And fast forward six months later, he goes back to the doctor. The doctor says, cancer's back again. Third time. He and Linda talked, said, okay, I'll go through chemo again. We'll keep fighting. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. He's cleared the cancer. About a month and a half later, after his third treatment, third time in and out of cancer, he calls me up and says, hey, I want to take you to breakfast. Linda and I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. So we go to breakfast and we sit and small talk for 20, 30 minutes. And I said, Ed, you wanted me to come here. He said, you want to talk about something and what's going on? He said, I want you to know that Linda and I have been seeking the Lord and we want you to know as our pastor that if the cancer comes back the fourth time, he said, I'm not going to treat it. He said, I'm ready. And Ed said to me something I've never forgotten for the rest of my life. He said, at some point, all the medicine in the world, it stops working. But he said, I am ready to go be with Jesus. So at that table in a place in Waxahachie, Texas, we basically planned out his funeral service. And three months later after that breakfast, Ed died and he went home to be with the Lord. You see, Ed did everything he could in that moment for those years of his life to treat it with medicine and to, and to trust in that. But eventually Ed understood and was a reminder to me that eventually the medicine stops working. And so for the Christian, the, the challenge there then and the mission there then is, is to make sure that when we are afflicted, to make sure that when we suffer, to make sure that when we endure those things, that we endure them with the right perspective and with the right understanding, that ultimately we say, thank you, Lord, for the medicine, but we don't make an idol out of the medicine because ultimately we know that we will trust in the Lord our God. It's similar to the story that we see in the book of Job, is it not? 
In Job 2.7, it says, uh, Satan leaves the presence of God looking for a righteous man to devour. He leaves the presence of the Lord and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job was so miserable in Job chapter 2 that his wife was like, Job, why don't you just go ahead and commit suicide? Like, you should just kill yourself, Job. The wife of Job uh, admonishes him to take his life. It says Job was so miserable after that that he breaks the, the pottery and the clay around him, and he is literally scraping every inch of his body to relieve himself from the context of these sores. But here's what we know about Job and we remember about Job. Job understood that the Lord was sovereign and good in the good times, and in the bad. Job understood that the Lord gives and the Lord takes. And he does so in his own way and in his own discretion. It reminded me of a quote that Tim Keller said years ago where he simply said, you don't really know Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. You don't know that he's all you need until he's all you have. Until the family goes and the friends leave and the medicine stops. And the point is, there is a way and a, and, a, and a how in which we are to suffer. But it says in verse 12 of the text, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So God's plan in this moment was to allow Pharaoh to harden his heart or for the Lord in this instance to harden his heart. And we've seen this back and forth. And the reason why God does this and the reason why he allows this to happen is that with each plague, it magnifies the power and the sovereignty of God and it satisfies the justice and the mercy of God. And it gives it purpose. Can I say to you this morning, Maybe you're struggling with pain in your own life, your own disappointments, your, your own realizations. Maybe someone next to you is suffering health-wise or physically-wise. It could be emotional or spiritual or whatever that may be. But can I tell you this morning emphatically that every ounce and every moment and every millisecond of pain and struggle that we feel that it always has a greater purpose. Because you see, there was a moment in Job's life when he was being afflicted. And it's one of my favorite verses in all throughout the book of Job, Job 23.10, where Job says this, but he knows the way that I take and when he has tried me, I will come out as gold. I'll be better for it. And I'll be stronger because of it. And the people around me, as they watch me practice faithfulness and obedience in the midst of it, they'll be better for it. And they'll be stronger for it. The Bible says that all those who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Pharaoh could have called upon his name and been saved. He could have been redeemed and, and reconciled. You today that are here today and far from God, our desire, our vision, our hope is that those of you that do not know him would come to know him today. It's as simple as trusting in him and putting our faith in him, repenting of our sins. It's just calling upon his name. And I think to be saved, it simply goes like this. It's just, Lord, would you save me? Would you save me, God? 
This morning, if you don't know him, we want you to. He loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you know Christ and and maybe your way of leaving here today is just simply trying to begin to understand the pain or the suffering that you're going through and processing with family and broken relationships and friendships and all the hurt and all the heartache that we see in this world. Jesus is always better than all of those things. Would you trust him? Father, we ask that you would, and you tell us in your word that you inhabit the praises of your people. And we wanna sing in response to that this morning. Our genuine desire is that we would be found faithful. Faithful with your word, faithful to your church, Father, that you died for and that you love. So Father, would you help us this week be faithful to both. Help us walk in truth, filled with your spirit as we seek to magnify the name of your son, Jesus, and God's people said, amen.